primary care knowledge-based social prescribing in primary care. Hello everyone and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today um, we are very excited to have um, Professor Dame Helen Stokes-Lampard with us. Um, You may recognise the name from her time at the Royal College of General Practitioners, but she will introduce herself a lot better than I will um, and tell you about all of her fantastic roles that she's been doing since. Yeah, we reached out to her when we decided to do a episode on social prescribing and we remember from the Royal College of GP conference that she spoke amazingly about it and got us really enthusiastic. Um, so uh, you'll hear us talking about what it is and why it matters and then you'll hear us talking a little bit about the National Academy of Social Prescribing as well as some really good examples of what social prescribing can do and how it can change um, people's lives. Exactly. And we also cover a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages, um, as well as great resources um, and where to find out more information if you're interested, um, both as someone who's working in primary care currently or someone who might want to become a link worker. So we hope you enjoy. So Helen, we always kick off with introductions for our listeners. So would you mind giving us a little bit of a background to yourself and your kind of association with social prescribing? So I've got quite a range of roles. I'm very lucky in that regard. First and foremost, I'm a GP. I'm a partner in a surgery in Litchfield and Staffordshire. I've been there for 20 years since I first qualified as a GP. Um, but I'm also a professor of GP education at the University of Birmingham. So that's one of the big medical schools, although I don't do any of that at the moment. They've kindly seconded me away to do other stuff. Um, I was formerly chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners from 2016 to 2019, so most GPs know my name from that role. But actually, my big substantive role at the moment is that I'm chair of a body that's called the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. And that's an umbrella body for all the colleges and royal colleges that award CCT. So it's incredibly interesting working with all the disciplines. It's one of those important organisations that most doctors have never heard of. And that's fine. They don't need to. But it's, it's there in the background with sort of standards and quality. But obviously, I'm here today as the founding chair of the National Academy for Social Prescribing. I became involved in the social prescribing movement back in 2017 when I was chair of the Royal College of GPs. And I was writing a speech for the the National GP Conference. And the point I was trying to get across in that speech was that the GPs are often pressurised into tick box medicine nowadays. You know, protocols are pathway driven care as opposed to truly patient-centered care, the stuff that encompasses not just physical and mental health issues, but the social and even spiritual elements of our patients' lives. So to illustrate the speech, I talked about a patient, Enid. Now, Enid, of course, isn't a real patient. She's a conglomeration of several, but I had to use an example. And Enid was somebody who a social prescription, that's what we call it nowadays, but I didn't realize it at the time, her social prescription transformed her life. And The speech became known as Enid-shaped care. And it was my realisation that what I was talking about and what I regarded as good general practice encompassed the concept that by then had the name social prescribing. And I've sort of been a flag bearer for it ever since. And subsequently, I helped persuade NHS England to invest heavily in social prescribing link workers uh, in 2019. That was a really massive coup as part of the new reforms and funding for general practice. And it was after that that the Secretary of State, or the then Secretary of State, Matt Hancock, asked me and uh, a chap called James Sanderson from NHS England to set up this brand new body, a National Academy for Social Prescribing. And I'm really proud of it. It's an independent charity in its own right nowadays. 
That's fabulous. Thanks, Ellen. What a great introduction. Um, and you have talked about it a little bit there, but I thought a good starting point would be to ask you what social prescribing actually is and why it matters to to talk about it and to to do it. Thanks, Lisa. Well, so social prescribing is something, there are various definitions of it, but I think about it as a process that helps people to live their best life by connecting them with practical and emotional support, usually in their local communities. So in the NHS setting, social prescribing means referring people where you've identified a social need to a link worker and a link worker who can take the time to find out what really matters to them, what motivates them, what makes them happy. And then do they have information or knowledge needs to go around that? So link workers have the time to build trusting relationships and they start with what matters to the person. They create a shared plan and and then they usually make introductions to community support, which can be from a wide range of activities. Sometimes they just signpost care, but the really powerful bit is actually making the direct connection, recognising that the sort of people we're helping often are lacking confidence or the ability to reach out and do these things for themselves. That's why they're being socially prescribing in the first place. So at NAS, we tend to divide these uh, resources and activities into two main sections, pillars or buckets of support, if you like. We start with advice and guidance. So the baseline stuff about financial well-being or how to get help, ensure people are safe and supported and secure. And that can also be advice about any conditions they may have, so connecting them with appropriate charities. But then the, yeah, the other three big headings are outdoors and nature. So that encompasses green spaces and blue spaces. We know that being in green and blue spaces is so good for our well-being. Sports and physical activity, all those natural endorphins, and just even a modest amount of increasing activity can help us hugely. Um, and then arts, culture and heritage, connecting with the things that we often don't invest in, but that actually lift us and give us real purpose and meaning in life. So that's sort of social prescribing. Um, but there are many other ways of thinking about it, too. Amazing. Do you know, um, it's also reminded me of, um, is it Maslow's Pyramid of Needs, starting down at the safety and the um, and those elements. And, and that's why the advice and guidance has to be the baseline. You've got to start that if somebody isn't safe in their housing, if they're cold and they're damp and they're frightened, you know, you take somebody perhaps who hasn't got a fixed a, a home or address, they're not safe, they're not secure. So trying to encourage them to join an arts project is not where you start. You start with getting the basics sorted, but everybody has got needs and everybody's life can be enhanced and improved somehow. So this is what it's, it's it's really what matters to that patient in their unique circumstances. So what you can't do is have fixed templates and tick boxes and say, right, tick, tick, tick. These are the things we go through with every patient because it has to be sophisticated and agile enough to mould to the individual in front of you. So we need to attract link workers who are genuinely interested in people in that whole complex messiness of individual lives. And, and there's a whole separate thing, which I have quite a strong views about, which is about how we appraise and evaluate social prescribing and prove its worth. And when we try and uh, use traditional academic paradigms, like the randomised control trial, for example, to highly complex social interventions that have multiple variables and factors, you can't treat it like a simple drug, does it work or doesn't it? when you're talking about such complexity. So we need to go to social sciences research methodology to evaluate these things. And as an academic, that's one of the reasons I was asked at the outset with my academic pedigree, to be able to have those robust discussions with my colleagues about using the correct paradigm to evaluate this sort of thing. Sorry, we're off at a tangent already. 
We are, but it's fascinating. <laughs> no, I, I mean that's that is incredible. It really does make you think how how on earth do you um you know appraise the service and yeah, that's brilliant. Um, so talk us through the structure a little bit, if you will, uh, because like you, you've mentioned there, the structure's changed. Um, and when we qualified in 2018, they did have just link workers. And now we're seeing terms like um, there's wellbeing coaches and care coordinators. Um, so if, would you mind giving us a brief overview of, of what the structure looks like at the moment? Sure. NHS England was the first uh, healthcare system in the world to invest in social prescribing. So, so it, um, and it was 2019 that officially it all started, although there were loads of pilots from a couple of years before then. So you're absolutely right in your assessment of the timing. But, but prior to this, there'd been social prescription and link workers called various things. Uh, provided by local governments in many parts of the country because there's been a recognition for decades that there's a real value added in helping people live their best lives. And so this isn't the preserve of the NHS. It's far from it. We've given it a name and a structure that perhaps it's never had before. It's got higher priority than it's ever had. But in terms of the specifics about how it works in the NHS in England, and bear in mind there are programmes now in the devolved nations too, but they all structure slightly differently. So I'm focusing this bit to answer your question about England. So money is provided centrally. Um, and through the primary care networks, uh, so the primary care DES, for those of you interested in the uh, GP finances bit of it, uh, and it's through the R's role scheme, so the additional roles reimbursement. And this is where the, the funding for link workers comes from. So the care coordinators and health coaches uh, are meant to interact with link workers. If you think of a little Venn diagram of these things, these three things overlapping, so you've got uh, Social prescribing link workers, you've got health coaches and you've got care coordinators. So health coaches are meant to look at very much how your health and lifestyle are adversely impacting on your health. So that's the people encouraging you to be physically active because it's good for your health, uh, to modify your diet because it's good for your health, to get more active. So, you know, these particularly focusing on people with um, multiple long-term chronic conditions, the diabetes, heart disease and so on. So you can see where advice about weight management will come in, health coaching. You've got the Care coordinators, we know that our NHS is hideously complicated. We struggle with how to refer, when to refer, which hospital for this, which centre for that, which form to use. Uh, if you've ever tried to take more than two tablets, two different drugs a day, you'll certainly realise how complicated it is being a patient. Being a patient can be a full-time job and care coordinators are there to help patients on their journey, to maximise efficiency of their journey, to ensure that they're in the right place at the right time with the right things they need to have read in advance. That's the role of a care coordinator, particularly focusing again on those with multiple long-term conditions, high need users, to help them navigate the pathways. It's also all of these have an outward element to them, but those two are very directly NHS focused, whereas the link worker is recognising that so many social problems are in the consulting room, are in the NHS, that actually the NHS cannot fix. So it's identifying those bits that are out with the NHS and helping people get the help so that other people, like the GP, don't need to be spending huge amounts of time doing it. We identify the problem, of course we do, but then we pass this element of our patient's lives on to the link worker to deal with. So that's how they're all meant to interact. Have I made sense? It's a, a, a picture would be helpful at this point. <laughs> yeah, the one downside of a podcast. But um, no, that, I think that's the clearest explanation that I've had of how those three interact and what the differences are. Um, and just thinking, um, um, Helen, about the kind of bigger structures and things at the beginning, you mentioned about the National Academy. How does that tie in and, and where does that fit? And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, thank you. So National Academy for Social Prescribing, NASP, not the best acronym in the world, but at least it's not rude or, you know, or difficult <laughs> to say. Um, so 
So officially, our role is that we are dedicated to the advancement of social prescribing through promotion, collaboration, and innovation. So if you like, that's the strap line. Advancing it through promotion, collaboration, and innovation. But what that means in practice is that we create partnerships across the art, health, sports, leisure, natural environment, and advice and guidance. Partnership bridge building. We champion social prescribing at every forum that we can, including me doing this kind of podcast, obviously, um, but also the work of local com- communities and helping charities in the third sector get resources and get their causes highlighted. Because actually funding for these things, you know, if we've got nobody to refer patients into, then social prescription is, is nothing if we haven't got the, you know, the, the organisations to pass on to. And so we're aiming to raise the profile, develop innovative funding partnerships and sustaining funding partnerships. So that's working with very big funding bodies and helping them channel resource down to the real micro level. Because, you know, for a massive national charity where they might have a million pounds to spend, actually, what my local, let's say, men in sheds you might need, they might need three or four hundred pounds a year just to have a room to keep meeting in or, you know, a thousand pounds to buy a computer so that they can produce some materials. Um, but how big organizations interact all the way through the, those transitions is something where we build the bridges. Contributing to the evidence is another one. I've alluded to this already. The evidence base is really important. You know, as certainly as a GP, I'm a scientist fundamentally. You know, we are, we have to be evidence based and scientific in what we do. We have to evaluate what we're doing and share the evidence. So evidence is an important one. And, but disseminating learning, uh, finding ways of using whatever routes we can to share learning. What that actually means in reality in terms of what we do with NASP is we've sort of got these sort of like main themes of things that we do. One thing I'm really proud of is probably our first big flagship was our thriving communities. And this is a big fund of money where we've, we've matched funding from donors to create a national network. Um, so based on the NHS England's seven regions, we've got networks in every region. We've got uh, volunteers representing various pillars. You know, I said about green spaces and uh, advice and guidance and so on. And then we've got a development program for them. So we've got this network. We've got an academic partners collaborative and they've started generating evidence summaries. So really clear, easy to read, accessible summaries of what the current evidence is, but also highlighting the very large gaps in the evidence. And so hopefully we can then uh, prod the funding bodies to fund appropriate research. Um, we've got this clinical champions program where we've got clinicians who are interested, whether at, at medical student level, at junior doctors and very experienced uh, clinicians and all sorts of healthcare professionals. This isn't just about doctors so who can champion the cause and help explain what, what this is all about. Oh, sorry, I mustn't talk about this for too long. But the last thing I, I do want to tell you about is our global alliance. We have helped set up a global alliance for social prescribing. Uh, in conjunction with the World Health Organization and part of the United Nations. And it, there are now 25 different countries who are involved and signed up to this. So although the UK has led the way in many ways, of course, other parts of the world will fund things and do things differently. And this is a universal challenge and universal opportunity for us all. So when I think of medicine in the wider sense, I think, you know, we've, we are very much in a Western paradigm of medicine. A lot of what we're doing here crosses more to the way the Eastern approach to medicine has been, which is a much more holistic approach to care. And I think of social prescribing as a really wonderful bridge between those different approaches to medicine. You know, not a disease-focused model of care, but actually a whole person model of well-being. Um, and actually our place as healthcare professionals in that is in one part of the totality of health and well-being. And I think that's probably a much more progressive way to think about it. That work from the Academy sounds amazing. 
We've had some amazing role models who've helped us along the way. So we've got people, you know, the East End of London, the work that uh, Sir Sam Everington, the team uh, in Tel Hamlets have done, was really sort of trailblazing in this space. So this wasn't our idea. All we did was bring stuff together um, and capitalise, I guess, on the enthusiasm of the tide of energy that there was around this at a time where people realise the NHS cannot continue in the way it's always done to do things. Um, you know, things have to change. And this is one small part of that bigger change. And just before we move on, because um, I'm just thinking about our listeners and the bit that you mentioned about clinical champions sounds like something practical that they can actually get involved with um, it, any of the healthcare professionals in primary care. What if someone's interested, what would they do for that? So look, the, the easiest thing is to look, go and have a little look at the NASP website. There's lots of information that's constantly being updated. But also, if you're on social media, then Twitter is the route that we use. Uh, so look out for NAS on Twitter um, and they, we advertise all our roles there. And there are a lot of things being advertised right now. So we'd love more people to come and join the party because it is fun. Great. We can link to all of those in the episode description as well. And then thinking from our perspective as GPs or people working in practice, what are the advantages for us um, to have a social prescriber in our PCN or our practice? I can, uh, look, let me tell you what it feels like to me as GP. Having a social prescriber there means that when those inevitable social and sometimes spiritual factors come up in a consultation that instead of me feeling the obligation to tackle those and to approach those as well as all the medicals and, and, and you know mental health stuff that I have to do I can identify them I can reflect that to the patient but ask the patient if they're happy for me to connect them with our link worker for the link worker to spend an appropriate amount of time with them in the past I had a little black book with all leaflets and numbers and contacts and website and actually the link worker just does it so much better than I can ever do. And it frees up my time to focus on the bits that only I can do. And as a GP, thinking about our time as a precious resource is really important. So that's the biggest thing for me, knowing that somebody else is doing it better. And that lifts that responsibility from me to focus on the other bits. Excellent. A bit trickier, but what um, might be some of the disadvantages um, that you can think of? I'm really glad you asked about disadvantages, Lisa, because it's so easy to not to, or to gloss over that bit of it. But yes, there are disadvantages, but the disadvantages are not specific to social prescribing. They're, they're about the direction of travel of the NHS and general practice at the moment. And that's about the reality that we can't do everything that we used to do for our patients. So when I first trained and worked as what we probably would think of as a traditional GP, um, I would be involved in all areas of my patients' lives, you know, contraception, screening, there for the entire journey, every part of it, there from the moment of birth to the moment of death. And over the years, as there is more that we can do for patients and the demands on us as healthcare professionals in the community have gone up, um, we've had to allow others to do different things, to free us up to do the bits only we can do. So, you know, when I qualified, the average person had three to four appointments in a GP practice in a year. Now it's over eight, you know, but there are no more GPs per capita than they were back then or hardly anymore. Uh, we've got a lot of other healthcare professionals. So this is the harsh reality. And colleagues are burning out all the time as they try and do everything they've always done. So I loved being there for the totality. I loved being able to do the contraceptive. I loved the antenatal care. I'm being there doing the baby checks just after the baby was born or occasionally being there at the birth or all the palliative care stuff that we did, you know, when we didn't have the palliative care nursing teams and we didn't have specialist nurses. But I know that those people are actually doing a better job of all those bits than I ever did. And what I've lost is that personal satisfaction in, in, in being Dr. Helen, who knows the whole family, not just the patient, but this family and the extended family. And I think that was a real privilege. 
And we must hang on to continuity of care in so many ways because it does provide better care in many situations, particularly when there are complex things and ongoing issues. But what we can't have in a modern NHS, unfortunately, is the luxury of us doing all those steps. So that's the downside. But, you know, I need to focus on managing their other diseases, optimising what they're on, working with my colleagues to make sure the NHS is giving them the best fit and let others look at those bit of the boundaries. Yeah, that makes complete sense. You're the specialist in that and the other specialists that we have now we should take advantage of. Um, and we would love to hear some anonymous examples of how social prescribing has actually worked in real life practice. If you have anything that you could share with us just to show the variety of help and how it can actually have an impact on patients' lives. Yeah, well, we, we, we started by mentioning Enid and Enid-shaped care, didn't we? And, and that was a situation where it was an older woman who, who had dealt with the grief of losing her husband. And they'd always been a really close couple. But she didn't have this purpose in her life anymore. She had no reason to get up. You know, she had family, and but they lived a long way away. So she couldn't provide any care or support for grandchildren and so on. Um, and so I connected her with this lovely innovative group that uh, paired up mature women with single mums. Uh, so mature women who wanted to give something back with single mums in the locality who didn't have support to help them. Uh, and this is a wonderful mutual benefit where she sort of, sort of you know, it helped teach this young mum how to cook, ended up doing some babysitting. Uh, and then it just gave her purpose. Of course, for the mum, she learned some new skills. It gave her confidence to manage, you know, basic illnesses in young children. She'd ask Enid first before, you know, necessarily I'd call him health minister or whatever. Um, and it gave them both purpose. So, so that, that was the Enid one. But one case is really burned in my mind. A patient of mine, a woman who's now in her sort of mid forties, and she's just genuinely had a terrible life. There's no question about it. At one point, a couple of years ago, she agreed to be referred to a link worker who took the time and discovered that she used to be in a choir. She could sing. She had a nice voice, and she went along and connected her with the local choir. She had to take her along because this is a woman with zero self-esteem, absolutely nothing, and. It really gave her a massive confidence boost because other people recognised that she had a nice voice and it didn't take that long until she got to a reasonable level and could be a very active part of the choir. And so the confidence made her more active. The increased activity gave her confidence and a bit more self-esteem. And so she ended up doing some volunteer work with local charities. Now, my hope is that eventually she would be in paid employment one day. But just seeing her out and about is a massive improvement in, in her life and how it was. And actually, I'm going to put a slight tangent. Loneliness versus social isolation. There's a lot of confusion over these terms. Social isolation is a measurable thing. We can measure the number of contacts a person has in a day. So elderly person stuck in their house gets two visits from a carer a day and three visits a week from somebody delivering meals on meals type thing. Yeah, measurable number of contacts. They may not feel lonely, however, because they are comfortable and content with their situation. Social isolation is measurable. Loneliness is, is a subjective thing. It is how we feel about the quality of our interactions. So you can be lonely in a crowded room. And the reason that came to my mind is I was thinking about young people at transition points in life when they move away from their normal structure. So whether that's going off to college or university, whether that's getting a job in a different city, and there are an awful lot of young people who are very vulnerable and are lonely. You know, in a world that is more connected digitally and socially than we have ever been, it can be a very lonely place to be if you don't feel that the interactions you have have any meaning. Um, quality of interaction versus quantity of interaction. Um, and so there are some amazing organisations like Men in Sheds. So we know that middle-aged and older men are one of the hardest groups to engage with when they have uh, mental health issues or are lonely and isolated. And if you are 
lonely or indeed if you're isolated, your health outcomes are far worse. You're going to die younger. You will do worse with almost every chronic disease measure. Um, and yet these are a group who are incredibly hard to reach out to. So organizations like Men in Sheds or some of the stuff organizations like the Football Association are doing with walking football are fantastic at reaching out to these men and in ways that appeal to them that are not, they don't feel are discriminatory or demeaning and bringing them in and giving them purpose. So, sorry, a bit of a diverse range of examples there, but these are things that make my heart sing. You know, this makes me happy. Yeah, it lifts me when you speak to patients and you kind of find out that they're involved in something that you know is giving them purpose and meaning and they're getting so much out of. It's like, oh, brilliant. (laughs) It is. And, and, you know, when we're trying to do a good job as GPs, that stuff adds to our satisfaction. And you've mentioned quite a lot there because I was going to ask um, about different organisations. There's so many things out there that are doing such worthwhile work. Um, and I guess as part of your job coordinating all that or, you know, overseeing so much variety over the country, are there any sort of standard resources that are worthwhile sort of giving an, a nod to for for our clinicians out there? Yeah, I mean, I guess there are organisations that I didn't know about before. So people like Money and Pension Service, basically debt advice and financial advice, they're amazing. So they are one of our key partners underpinning the sort of advice and guidance bit because, you know, unfortunately without money... All the rest of the stuff, can, you know, it's very hard to be safe and secure if you haven't got at least a bare minimum. And there are so many things out there for people uh, that they're unaware of. So, yeah, money, uh, so MAPS, money and pension service, definitely a, a really good starting point. They provide some brilliant packs uh, for people to help them in all sorts of formats, you know, recognising people with newer disabilities or learning difficulties or cognitive impairment and so on. And, um, you know, what about organisations like Park Run? What an amazing organisation, which has natural, you know, I'm trying to give you ones that have got national reach so that, people, you know, that I can wax lyrical about things that are local to Mitchell, but that won't help you if you're in Sheffield or whatever. So, um, yeah, Park Run, such good ethos, culture, I mean, it really embracing. But I think that can be quite scary for some people. So I mentioned about the Football Association and doing things like uh, walking football. So quite a lot of, particularly the premiership clubs, have got really good initiatives. Um one thing that's made my heart sing, as perhaps too close to the market, is the English National Opera have got a program called Breathe. And it's to help people recovering post-COVID uh, with breathing exercises and using singing as a way to regain lung capacity. And, it, you know, OK, it's easy because it's more focused in London, but there are online resources there. So English National Opera, Breathe. Uh, yeah, organisations like Campaign for End Loneliness. I love a lot of the loneliness stuff about um, tea parties and, uh, yeah. There's tons out there. I think what I would love is I would love there to be a kind of Wikipedia of resources. And that's one thing I've been really pushing to try and get a big organisation to take ownership of, to give us a baseline platform that everyone can plug into. And what I like about the wiki approach to things is that it's then up to the individual organisations to keep their information updated um, and searchable. So, you know, in geographical scale, you know, the criteria and so on. So that's one of my little pipe dreams and projects for the future. That just would just be such a sensible thing. Because if there are thousands of small databases out there, you know, most local governments have got some sort of resources. Many CCGs have got some resources, but we need a, a good, we need a national one. I mean, don't we? Clearly, um, that we can all plug into an access. Yeah, that'd be so efficient. <laughs> I, I know, exactly. If, if, if there's anybody listening who can persuade Google or somewhere else to do this, I'm, I'm <laughs> all ears. I'm giving my phone number. Talk to me. Come and talk to me. We can make this happen. Amazing. And anything else that you um, you think about the future of social prescribing? Anything to share about where you think it might go or where it is going currently? The next couple of years are going to be really interesting. So there's funding in the NHS long-term plan for the next two years for continued expansion. 
probably we're approaching about 2,000 link workers at the moment. The idea is to double that in the next couple of years so that we really have got enough to take on the, the need that's out there. Um, but it's also really important that we demonstrate the value of that and get the evidence for it. The NHS in England are actually having a refresh of the long-term plan currently. And so so one thing for me is, is making sure that this voice is heard, that this golden thread continues through there. Because I think if you ask GPs who have really got into it and they're using their link workers well and they've got great collaboration going, if you ask them, I'm going to take your link workers away, you really hear the wails and concern about it and indeed from the patients. Do think this increasing narrative of helping people to help themselves is going to be incredibly important to the well-being and personal responsibility bit for those who can be personally responsible. Um, and I think that's something we can all get energised by. But we also have to be realistic. We're entering a hideously difficult financial time of the next decade uh, as we become the post, well, we'll never be post-COVID, but post-pandemic and uh, the, the, the debt that has to be repaid. The national debt has to be repaid. There will be no extra money coming our way. Quite the reverse. And it's how we do more with less uh, going forward. And that's quite a scary thought, actually. Um, but we are incredibly resourceful in the NHS. We keep uh, working miracles on a daily basis. So I, I have no doubt that we'll rise to the challenge, but I think it's going to involve more rethinking and evolution of the way we do things. Um, and clearly technology is going to play an important part in how we utilize that to greatest effect and safely, but all the while recognising the digitally disadvantaged. And I think one of our big roles as GPs, because we're really at the sharp end of this, is calling it out where the digital solution is not adequate or appropriate for our patient populations and ensure they're protected. Absolutely. Actually, I would love to see social prescribing extended in the NHS so it's beyond the bounds of primary care. Um, I know that the care of the elderly specialists are desperate for it. Interestingly, many of my colleagues in A&E would love to have access to social prescribing because they know many of their frequent flyers are people with social, not medical problems, you know, many of the homeless people, people with addiction problems clearly need mental health support too. They've got huge social needs. Uh, but then areas like um, anaesthesia, now sometimes we think of ourselves in general practice as being a long way separated from our colleagues in anaesthesia, but there's a real focus on uh, pre-operative care. And prehabilitation, getting people into the best possible place before they have surgery. And the most died in the world, hard nosed orthopedic surgeon will tell you that a person who is depressed and lives in terrible housing will do far worse following orthopedic surgery than somebody who is loved, well supported and, and has a good job. Uh, it, it, it can be exactly the same procedure with the exact same pathology, but their course and progress will be so different. So, Social prescribing can help in so many areas of medicine, but I don't want it to be the preserve of just general practice going forward or indeed of any one age group of patients. Yeah, good point. So um, in terms of people out there who are interested in um, finding out either about becoming a social prescribing link worker or um, practices or PCNs that haven't got one and are thinking about it, where's the best place for them to be able to go to get more information? The main resource within the NHS is to go to NHS England's website. It's the personalised care part of NHS England because it's a big complex organisation. So NHS England, personalised care, and within that, the social prescribing and the link workers section is clearly signposted within there. Um, and you can contact them and find out what's going on. All the integrated care systems in time will have structures that are set up to help signpost, but they are in, in their infancy at the moment. So I would go straight to the national level rather than local, unless you know in your CCG somebody that you can speak to about this. But if you want the CCG bit of it, then it's the people responsible for the R's, you know, the additional role funding. But a lot of that is about the funding and movement. The support and training and understanding is much more held at the national level. 
We'll put that all in the episode description as well. Um, and so just final points. It's been amazing talking to you, Helen. But um, what would you like the listeners to take away from the discussion today? Well, first of all, I'm going to say thank you, Lisa and Sarah, for the podcast. It's been really fun chatting to you about one of my favourite <laughs> topics. So thank you. Um, what do I want people to take away? I guess I want people's curiosity to be piqued. If you know nothing about social prescribing, I want you to you know, want to find out more. Um, if you're having a go with it, but it's not quite working for you, it's I'd ask you to persevere. Um, it's, this is quite new and everything needs embedding. Um, but many of our link workers need a lot of support from us. They don't necessarily understand the way we work as GPs. So you do need to be buddying up with your link workers. Somebody in the practice needs to be the conduit and the support, just like any other professional. They need uh, to interact with us. So we need to communicate with each other. Um, but also I want people to think about giving back and helping others. And that wider stuff is actually an incredibly important thing about our own well-being. So what's our personal social prescription? What is it that we can do for ourselves? Uh, what, what can I socially prescribe for me to make me be happier, more fulfilled and ultimately healthier? I'll give you my little example. When I was having a big change in life um, two years ago, that was when I was stepping down as chair of the Royal College of GPs, I recognised there was going to be this big void in my life. Um, and what was I going to do to fill it? And I thought back about things that I wasn't doing now that I used to do. And I went and I bought myself a piano. Um, I used to play the piano when I was younger. Uh, I hadn't had access to a reasonable quality piano for a very long time. And I treated myself to an electric piano. And, you know, that's just been so lovely. So on the rainy days when I can't be out in my garden, which I do love, um, actually, um, my piano, uh, particularly as it's an electric one, so I've got headphones, so I don't need to disturb <laughs> anyone else, um, with my not very uh, adept playing, uh, is there. It makes me feel happy and fulfilled and uplifted. Amazing. What a beautiful message. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Helen. That has been brilliant to talk to you. Such a pleasure, both of you. Thank you. And thanks for the great work you're doing with these podcasts. It's fab. So um, as everyone I'm sure who's listening can tell, we were utterly thrilled to talk to Helen. Um, what are your learning points, Lisa, from today? Oh, so many different bits. Um, but I loved at the beginning whenever um, she was defining what social prescribing was um, and said that it was helping people to live their best life. Um, and I just thought that was such a lovely phrase. Um, and it's really what we all probably go into general practice or medicine to do in the first place. So I think that was, that was just a really lovely way of putting it. And the fact that it is that true patient centered care, it's, it's the social prescribing link workers build those relationships with patients and they find out what matters to them, which we often don't have time to be able to do fully. So it's nice to have that, um, space within primary care at the moment, um, for that to happen. Um, and for what matters to the patient to be found and for them to hopefully then go on to live their best life. Yeah, I was thinking of that because when we're actually doing the forms to refer somebody to link workers, although there's different ways of doing it now, um, there was a bit of like, what what exactly, what's the main priority here? And it's interesting how often I haven't asked the patient what their main priority is. So you're kind of guessing from based on what they've said, but you know, they've got that space to go, yeah, what is my main priority and, and get that really looked at as the first and foremost point. And like she says, look at the, the baseline of needs and that, that, that structure is their safety is that, you know, often those are the things that they'll need to focus on. But the actual, the other bits that can really um, bring meaning to people's lives is just so incredible. The work that can be done with that and to decrease uh, loneliness. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And the, just a bit like, like you said, the, that, that thinking of it in that context of the fact that referring somebody to an arts program isn't going to work if they don't have a safe house. Um, yeah. and that just that there is someone out there that can look at that and help to sort that so that then they can move up the, the theoretical hierarchy of needs and they can start to get more fulfillment in their lives. It, it is such good work. Um, and you mentioning there about loneliness as well, that her talk about loneliness versus um, social isolation was fascinating. Yeah, that was really interesting. And um, moving back to when she was talking about the, at the beginning, the pillars, like the different types of, of structures, I thought that was really helpful to go through just to sort of put more structure to it. I think generally that's the real overarching theme is the structure to have come in and kind of really shaped what this looks like and where you see it going, I think has been an incredible learning point really um that there's just so much out there and actually yes gps and and clinicians it can be such a an amazing part of the job to help with because so much of people's lives it's all about those social determinants of their health um and you know having some skills are are brilliant but then having the, the the that space to really specialize in it and know what's going on and what people what will work for different people is, is brilliant yeah and oh i love the care coordinators part because i hadn't quite appreciated I'd, i had this explained to me a few times um but i've spent quite a lot of time with patients going through i think it's one of the reasons i i can often run late <laughs> um but the patient journey what to expect um and and all of those types of things that's actually amazing i think that'd be really really helpful i think we've got one coming in our practice soon so like, oh that's that's a great <laughs> that addition <laughs> yeah that that explanation was really helpful to understand the difference between the three roles actually yeah um and just going back to what she said as well the she was right this isn't this isn't a new thing this isn't um something that's been dreamed up like gps and clinicians have been doing it for a long time there have then been link workers for a long time it's just been a process over the last couple of years of coordinating it at a more national level so that it's got more guidance and structure and um kind of training and opportunities associated with it and funding yeah i really like when she talked about research i thought that was really interesting how do you research this how do you get evidence about what works what doesn't and i love the idea of the database that she was suggesting oh, as well yeah. that'd be amazing yeah definitely reiterate that any listeners out there that they can get that set up that would be fantastic yeah if you're interested we can pass your details on to her so you can always email us as well exactly <laughs> um but yeah another another fabulous episode and we're so happy that we're able to make it happen um so yeah if you did want to get a touch please do we've got like i said the um on you'll see all the resources on the episode description and there's our twitter handle uh, and our feedback form as well so any feedback is appreciated thank you so much for listening till next time on primary care knowledge beast This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.